Uh, we're thrilled to have a special guest here with us this morning, as uh, Pastor Brandon said, to uh, minister the Word of God to us. Um, we're talking about the image of God in the poor this morning. <clears throat> And the poor this morning. Next Sunday, you don't want to miss uh, our own Ed Bear will be here to speak about the image of God uh, in the prisoner. But uh, Jack um, is the president of Water Street Mission, a ministry that we have supported for many years. And um, he's been president for the last four years, but he has been uh, involved with Water Street for uh, almost a quarter of a century. Dude, that's a long time. Um, how old are you? Uh, don't answer that. Um, Jack and I have been getting to know each other the last couple of years a little bit more, and uh, they live in this, he and his wife, uh, Tanya, live in the city of Lancaster, and uh, they have four daughters, and uh, I, that's an ab- been abrupt. I just found out during your message that you grew up a family of four boys, so that's really been an adjustment. You talk about baptism by fire. <laughs> so let me pray for you, brother, and then uh, share with us. Father, thank you for Jack, for his ministry. Thanks for Water Street Mission that has impacted uh, not just the city of Lancaster, but the region of Lancaster County uh, for really 100 years now. And we thank you for the vision of those who, who raised it up and for your empowerment over these years to serve uh, so many in our community. I pray that you would open our hearts this morning to not only hear, but to feel um, your heart uh, through Jack's words. I pray that uh, we'd be responsive to what you're saying to us individually. Empower him by the Holy Spirit for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Keith. It's great to be here again. And uh, thank you, Keystone, for allowing me to join you again. I was here um, probably a year and a half ago, I think, maybe, or, or two years ago was the last time. But um, just a, a joy to be here. It's, a, it's great to worship along with you and to be a part of what God's doing uh, for this little piece of what God's doing in in your family, in your community. And um, just am honored to, to be the, have the chance to speak to you again. And um, I'm also recognizing that um, preaching two services, that's tough. Like, I'm not a script that you'll notice. Like, I will look at my notes. Um, and if anybody was here, well, I know Keith was here in the earlier service, he'll notice that this might be a completely different sermon than I preached the first service because I don't know how to do that twice. Like, I don't know how to do the same sermon twice. I would be a horrible lead pastor of a church with multiple services. I'd be, because everybody, one congregation would think we're all about this and and the the group that comes at 11 would think we're all about that because I can't, like, I just don't know how to do that. So um, we'll see what happens this morning as I preach. So hopefully... He let me come back for a second one, so that means the first one wasn't terrible, I'm assuming, or he just didn't want to have to get up here and and do it himself, but um, hopefully this one will be okay as well, so thanks for trusting me. I was really excited when I first heard the theme for this Sunday, talking about the image of God in the poor. Um, As Keith said, I've been a part of Water Street for, it's actually 25 years now. Um, I started in 1993 with the intent of working at Water Street for two months. And and at the end of that summer, the guy who hired me for the summer, like, basically begged me to stay because the entire staff of the youth center that I was working at that summer had moved on. 
and he's looking at the crew of people who were there for the summer, and I was one of the only ones who didn't either have to go back to school or go to another job when I left. And, uh, and so he begged me to stay and gave me the supervisor position, which I had no idea what to do with that, fresh out of college. And, uh, and so I told him, you know, I'll give you two years because I have this plan for my life. We, we know how that works out sometimes. So I went from two months to two years, and then two weeks into that two years, I had about a dozen kids ask me when I was leaving. I'm like, man, I guess I'm not very good at this and they're gonna get rid of me sooner. But I knew that wasn't true, because I was really good at what I was doing. Um, thanks. <laughs> I thought I was anyway. So I talked to some of the kids. I'm like, what the heck? Why does everybody keep asking me when I'm leaving? And a few of the kids that I had built some trust with over the summer said, Jack, everybody leaves. The guy who was here before you was here for one year. Rich, who was here before him, he, he lasted a year and a half. And the, the lady who had the position before him was here for about nine months. And they went down the list of the five people who had had the job before me, and the longest anybody had stayed was a year and a half. And suddenly I started looking at my job a little differently, and I started looking at the kids a little differently. And I had to take a different perspective on what I was doing there and what ministry was, and especially ministry among kids who are experiencing poverty and all the things that go along with that. And so I went back to my boss and I said, you remember that two-year deal we worked out? I said, as long as I don't screw things up, I'll stay as long as you want me to. And so 25 years later, I'm still at Water Street. They put me in charge. If you stick around long enough, be careful. They might put you in charge. I have no idea what I'm doing. I tell my staff that all the time. I really, president of a rescue mission, I have no idea what that role means or entails or demands of me. But I do know the heart of the ministry. And as long as the board and the staff and the community says this is what Water Street should be about, I'm gonna stay there in whatever role, whether it's president or if they need somebody else to take that because I prove that I don't know what I'm doing and they put somebody else in that role. Like I'm still willing to stay and do what they want me to do for the sake of the heart of the ministry. And when we're gonna talk about a passage of scripture later that, that speaks to the heart of that ministry, but I was excited because Water Street, the heart of Water Street, I think reflects Jesus's heart and how Jesus's heart and God's heart for the poor is reflected through scripture. So I was really excited when Keith said, this is what I want you to speak on. And then I started putting it together. And we talked again on Monday. I was actually driving back to my office from the Martin Luther King. I forgot to check the clock before I got up here. Okay, cool, he's gonna stop me. That's weird, because it could just right in the, okay, 11.40. <laughs> People just, you can just get up and start walking out if I go past the time. That'll be my cue. 
So I'm driving back from the Martin Luther King breakfast at Millersville to my office and Keith called and we were chatting a little bit about, which is a good thing to do, make sure that your speaker actually knows what he's supposed to be speaking about. Um, so we talked about it a little bit and I got even more excited. And uh, by Monday night, I had my sermon completely planned out. I knew what I was going to say. And then Tuesday afternoon, I, I was looking over some things and I realized I have a completely different sermon I want to do. And then Wednesday, it changed again. And then Thursday, I didn't think about it because I was afraid that it would change again. And then finally, yesterday, I'm looking at all my notes again and I realized I have about seven sermons worth of stuff, which is why you're going to get something completely different than the morning the early service did. So it scared me a little bit. I'm like, man, like, how do I carry this well? And, and it hits me sometimes. Sometimes I get up to speak and it just, I speak. Sometimes I get up to speak, and especially with the kind of introduction that Brandon mentioned earlier about, you know, we're not going to take our cue in issues related to the world and to people and the poor from the right or the left or the press or the politicians or the marketers, which maybe have greater control than any of those others. We're going to take our cue from the Word of God. So now I'm really nervous to share with you because that's a, that's a huge burden. But it's not my burden. I'm, I'm trusting and, and my prayer during worship was that God would speak through me, that the Holy Spirit would show me what to say so that I don't screw this up. Because it is very serious that we want to take our cue from the Word. We want to take our cue from the Spirit and not from what other people say because other people are just like us and we know us how flawed and how biased we are and how unlike Christ we are when we are left to our own devices and our own flesh. But when the Spirit's speaking to us and when we're opening ourselves to the Word and allowing God to speak to us, sometimes we see Him shine through. And that's my hope for this morning. So out of the the thousands, literally thousands of scriptures that have to do with the poor, I have a book at home that's the Bible on hunger and poverty and it's a book that's almost as thick as the Bible because you can kind of just take the whole Bible and say, here, (laughs) everything the Bible has to say on hunger and poverty, it's right here. But there's a book that pulls out all those and literally thousands of verses. But the one that jumps to all of our minds, I think, if we've spent time in Scripture and especially in the New Testament and the Gospels and you think of the image of God in the poor, What passage comes to mind? Is there a scripture in the Gospels that comes to your mind? The image of God in the poor. Go ahead and shout it out. I'm going to make you talk a little bit. Somebody's got, there we go, the sheep and the goats. All right, now here's your Bible quizzing days coming back. If anybody grew up in the church, where's the sheep and the goats found? Matthew, I heard somebody say Matthew. Matthew. Matthew 25, great. All right. I went to one of those churches. It was actually a Methodist church, which isn't known for being really deeply grounded in the word. But, um, but we, were, we, we were quizzed on some different things. So Matthew 25, turn with me to Matthew 25. There's a, a passage on the wall there. This is kind of the, the key hinge. I'm gonna read a little bit more of this, this parable. This is one of Jesus's most well-known parables. It's one of the kingdom parables where he's talking about this is what the kingdom of God looks like. 
and will look like. Starting in verse 31, it says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink, a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And he goes on and he talks to those on his left and he says, you saw me in all these places too and you didn't do anything for me. And of course the response is, what do you mean? If we had seen you, if I saw you hungry or thirsty, I would have fed you. What do you mean? He said, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. I mean, how much more identification with the poor, the image of God in the poor, can you find than that? Jesus saying, here's the kingdom picture. The king is going to say to everyone, your eternal destiny with me or without me is going to be dependent on how you treated me. And oh, by the way, this is how I know how you treated me. What did you do for the poor, for the hungry, for the sick, for those in prison? Jesus is saying, I was there. That was me. Identification, the image of God and the poor. I really didn't want to use that passage this morning because to me, it's kind of like you're cheating to the end. I, I, I tried to think of a way to kind of build up Hold that one off and then end with that because that would be, mm, get him. You can't deny the image of God in the poor because look. And then I was like, I don't want to use it at all because everybody uses that one. But you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it when Jesus is saying, look, this is what it's all about. There's a couple places where Jesus, I think, gets down to it and says, this is what it's all about. We can't ignore those passages of Scripture. We can't ignore the implications of them. One of the problems with this passage, and one of the reasons why I don't like to use it as much, is because I think it can also lead to the wrong attitude. Because when I read that passage of Scripture, when Jack reads that, I hear, okay, I saw you hungry, I gave you something to eat. I saw you naked, I gave you some clothes. I saw you sick and I visited you. All right, I've got a list of things that I just need to make sure I check off in order 
to be in right standing. So let me make sure I carry my list with me. If I see somebody who's hungry, let me make sure I got some change or some food or I take them to McDonald's or I I carry around some gift certificates with me. So it can be real quick. Or in the fall when those boxes are in every Turkey Hill and M&T Bank, I can put some canned food in a box knowing it's going to go to Water Street and it's going to help some hungry people. I can visit somebody when I hear they're in the hospital and check it off my list so that when I stand before God and he says, when I was sick, I can say, oh, ooh, I visited you. When I was hungry, yeah, yeah, I put cans and I wrote that check and I even gave some money to that guy and the one time I actually even took him to the restaurant with me and we sat down and we had a meal together. I check it off my list and I've exchanged in that transaction that puts me in good standing with God. That's the danger of that. That's how I end up interpreting it. I'm not saying that's what that verse is saying. I'm saying that's how I deal with that verse, with that passage. That's the answer for me. I've got my list of things. Now I can check it off, and I've done what God's called me to do. And at the end of the day, I'll be on the right side. And that's what scares me about using that verse because it's too easy to go there in our own humanness. But to me, that's not God's heart. And that's not God's view or image in the poor. Doesn't motivate us. The image of God in the poor doesn't motivate us into a transactional connection. Understanding the image of of God in the poor will move us to relationship. And we see throughout scripture, a number of different places where God talks about his image in the poor. It's all throughout Proverbs and Psalms. We could go through a huge list of them. There's a a great one that a lot of people know in Proverbs chapter 19 that says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. There's this connection again, that actually the act of connecting with the poor, you're connecting with God in that. Again, this close identification with the poor In Proverbs 17, it says, if you make fun of poor people, if you make fun of somebody who's poor, you insult the God who made them. Again, this identification that how we act and treat is how we act and treat God. All throughout there, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, don't look at the, the prophets if you're not interested in really wrestling with justice and poverty and what all that means. Just skip those. It's a lot easier. Just jump right over and and go to the New Testament. And by the way, skip a lot of what Jesus says too. That'll make it easier for you. But it's all through Scripture. It's all over the place. And Jesus himself makes it really clear what his purpose is. In Luke chapter 4, We'll take a look at that as well. Luke chapter four is where Jesus really announces his ministry when he first shows up on the scene. Before he heals, before he preaches sermons to thousands of people on the hillside, right after he's baptized, spends 40 days in the wilderness, he comes back, hits a couple other towns where it says that he preached the kingdom We have no idea what he said until he gets to Nazareth, his hometown. And when he gets to Nazareth, 
he goes into the synagogue. And there he stood up and read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I love the imagery here. You don't get a whole lot of imagery in the Gospels because they're telling these huge stories in, in small places, but the imagery is right here. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is a dramatic scene, right? You don't get that kind of drama laid out in most of the gospel stories, kind of setting the tone. One of the reasons for that is that this was a messianic prophecy that Jesus was reading. So everybody in the synagogue knew who this was supposed to be about. So the words he said at the end, today this is fulfilled in your very hearing. Today I'm here to fulfill this scripture. He knew the risk of saying that. Everybody in the synagogue knew what he was saying by that. He's saying, I'm the Messiah and this is why I came. And that was a dangerous thing to say. Actually, the people wanted to kill him after that. Some were amazed. Some were like, whoa, isn't this Joseph's son? And then some of them tried to kill him. And he had to flee from Nazareth to avoid being killed. But what's even more important is this is where Jesus is saying, here is why I've come. Not only am I the Messiah, but let's get it right. Here's who I came for and why I came. I've come for the poor. I've come for those that everybody else overlooks. If you look at the passage in Isaiah that he's quoting, that he read from, and you look at that whole chapter, Isaiah 61, those first verse and a half, two verses is all about who he came for. It's for the poor, it's for the blind, it's for the prisoner, it's for those who are mourning, it's for those who are filled with a spirit of despair. It's all the people that we don't want to be a part of. It's all the people that society says are less than and worthless. And Jesus says, that's who I came from, for. And actually, maybe that slip was intentional. It wasn't intentional, but maybe it was the right slip because that's who he came from, too. Where was Jesus born? In a backwater town to a young girl who was pregnant before she was actually married when Jesus was born, it's clear that he wasn't born into money because when they go to Jerusalem to make the sacrifice for the newborn, they sacrifice the sacrifice of the poor, two birds rather than a sheep. So he came from the poor, but he came for the poor. He came for those that everybody else overlooks. And in Isaiah, it goes further and it says, not only did, do we come and bring good news and hope and meet people where they're at in that moment and provide a transactional exchange and say, yes, you're in need, let me give you this. You're hungry, let me give you food. You're thirsty, let me give you a drink. Let me give you some clothes. Let me 
bring healing to your eyes so you're no longer blind. Let me release you from prison and so now everything's solved. No, it goes beyond that. In verse three and four, it says that they, those that everybody thinks is worthless, that they might become oaks of righteousness, a planning for the display of the Lord's splendor, that the lives of those that everybody else thinks is worthless are gonna turn around in such a way that it brings glory to God. And then verse four, it says that they might become restorers of the ruined city, rebuilders of the places long devastated. There's a transition, not a transaction, that happens in the lives of the people that Jesus came for. There's a transformation, and that transformation only happens through relationship, and we see that in the way Jesus walked with people. And a comment before I go any further, about this whole idea of the poor and this concept of this group of people that we call the poor. I hate that. I hate the label. I don't like talking about the poor because it's a made-up term. It's completely relative and subjective. We can apply it in so many different ways because if you compare me to Bill Gates, what am I? All right, other than unaccomplished and like all those other things and not nearly as intelligent, we don't need to go there. Let's not get personal. Compared to Bill Gates, what are you? Poor. If there's anybody who would answer differently than that, Keith would love to talk to you afterwards. There might be some projects that the church has in mind. It's all relative. Compared to the people who are staying at Water Street tonight, I'm rich. Compared to even my neighbors who live right across the street from me, but they're staying in subsidized apartments, I'm rich, they're poor. We start making these differentiations. You know what? Everybody in this room has no right to look at themselves through the lens of poverty because 80% of the people in the world are living on $10 a day or less. 50% of the world on $2.50 a day or less. You are rich. All the guests staying at Water Street tonight are rich compared to the 80% of the world who are living on $10 or less a day. It's this arbitrary, subjective term that we label people with. And why do we do that? Because it helps us feel better about ourselves. One of the greatest sins, this is, I'm going way off from this morning. One of the greatest sins in my mind in my life that I've struggled with is the sin of comparison. We begin separating ourselves from other people because we want to compare ourselves, whether it's finances, poverty, versus riches and resources. I mean, I, I don't even need to go there. You're already there, right? Tribalism, classism, sexism, racism. We divide ourselves with arbitrary, meaningless stuff. Eagles fans and Cowboys fans. 
one of the worst divides in our world today. We make up stuff. Seriously, we make, I mean, that, the sports analogy, it's a joke, but we make up reasons to not like each other. I mean, it's ridiculous. One of my closest friends in the world is a Cowboys fan. I can't stand him. We make up reasons to hate each other, to feel better about ourselves because we're different than them. And that goes all the way back in Isaiah 61, this group of people that is rejected by the world. Why? Because of a momentary circumstance in their life. The men and women and children who walk through the doors of Water Street aren't poor. They're not homeless. Those are titles that don't belong attached to them. Because they speak about a temporary moment in their life and circumstance that they're dealing with. They don't talk about their identity. They are our neighbors, our friends, our brothers, and our sisters who are experiencing a season of poverty, who are experiencing homelessness because of whatever's gone on in their life. They're not poor. They're not homeless. It's convenient for us to use those labels, and I don't, I don't mean to imply that every time you make, say that phrase that you say somebody's homeless or somebody's poor, that you're judging them because it's not that intentional but there's something deep behind that. And I, I, I stumble sometimes and I use those phrases, but I, I try as best I can to talk about you know, our friends, our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness, our friends, our neighbors who are experiencing poverty, who are experiencing the, the impact and implications of poverty. It reminds me that the person, in essence, isn't their circumstance. So this whole idea of the image of God and the poor, who are the poor? All of us are the poor. Philippians chapter two, Paul's talking to the church at Philippi and he's saying, if you've gotten anything from your relationship with Jesus, think about this. Be more like him. Jesus was equal to God. And he decided that's not something I wanted to hold on to and grip. This is the Jack Crowley modified version. He was equal to God, but he didn't hold on to it. He let it go and he emptied himself and became poor. Became a human being. He emptied himself of all the riches, all the power, all the, all the privilege, of being part of the Godhead and became human and then became a servant of all, a slave, and then allowed himself to be killed on a cross for us. So when we start looking at divides and who's poor, who's rich, who has resources, who doesn't, all that stuff, let's remember, like, I could be standing at ground level and you could be standing at the top of Mount Everest and it seems like there's a huge difference between us. But from the perspective of heaven, shoot, just stop at the moon. From the perspective of the moon, could you tell a difference between where you are and where I am? It's a joke. We've got nothing to build up these divisions on, especially when it comes to economic circumstances. 
the poor versus the rich and, and viewing ourselves as different. It's who we are. We're all poor. Jesus saw that and he emptied himself to be like us. To take on human flesh, to be born in a poor family, even relative to the circumstances of the time. An oppressed people in an oppressed land in a poor neighborhood to a family that was questionable and clearly didn't have economic resources. Jesus lowered himself. Why did he do that? What does this matter to us? That we can get rid of this divide and stop looking at people as poor or rich, resourced or unresourced, begins to allow us to look at people as people. Like you talked about last week, created in the image of God. And when we recognize that, then the circumstances move us, not the labels. There's a word in the New Testament that's used 12 times, 10 of them about Jesus and, and two others in his stories. It's, I should look, look at it so I don't get it wrong. I'm not a Greek scholar, so this might be wrong. Splanknitzomai. It's got a whole bunch of consonants together. Splanknitzomai. N-G-C-H-N, all in a row. It's kind of like, kind of gross sounding. Sorry to do that right into the microphone. That's disgusting. But it's appropriate because what the word means is being moved deep inside in your entrails. What are entrails? Anybody use that word anymore? When was the last time you said the word entrails? Your guts, your bowels, deep inside, to be moved deep inside your guts, splachnitzomai, shows up 12 times in the New Testament. Jesus is moved deep in his gut when he sees the people and recognizes they're like sheep without a shepherd. When a large crowd gathers on the shore and there were many sick among them, and they were looking for some shred of hope. He was moved deep in his gut. When there was a crowd that had been following him for three days and they were without food, he was moved deep in his gut. When there were blind men calling out to him, when a leper approached him, when the father of a son who was possessed by a demon that was throwing him into the fire, when a mother with a dead son was walking through the streets. Jesus was moved deep within, in his guts, with compassion. And then he told two stories that included this phrase. One about a master whose, whose servant was overwhelmed with debt, a debt he would never be able to pay, and he fell on the ground and begged and pleaded not to be thrown into prison. And the master was moved with compassion. And the other is the father of the prodigal son, who after losing his son and wondering if he'd ever see him again, saw his son coming up the road and while he was still a long way off, the father was moved deep within his guts. And it led to action. Because when you have that feeling, it's so much different than pity. 
We can have pity over all kinds of things. We can feel sympathy towards all kinds of circumstances as long as that person is a distance from us. If they're other, if we found a way to separate out from us, we can look at people experiencing poverty and we can feel pity or sympathy. And pity or sympathy might get us to do something. Maybe we'll say a prayer. Maybe we'll put a can in the box. Maybe we'll give a donation to Water Street. But when we get a phone call that our best friend lost his job and his wife is sick and he's about to be evicted, you feel like you get punched in the stomach. You're moved deep inside your guts. When you get a phone call that your parents or one of your closest friends was diagnosed with cancer or just lost their child in a car accident. It's like being punched in the stomach. You're moved deep inside and you don't just consider, oh, what could I do? Maybe I'll send them a card. Maybe I'll, I'll pitch into a GoFundMe. When it's somebody you deeply care about and you relate to and you connect with, you're moved deep inside, you do something about it. You walk with them in relationship through the hardest time of their life and you don't even flinch because that's what compassion does. It moves you deep inside. And we put up these barriers and we call people poor or rich or homeless and not because it allows us to provide some distance, to create some distance, to think of people as other so that when we see their circumstances, when we hear of their circumstances, we can be moved by pity or sympathy. And we might even do something nice for them. But when it's a brother or sister, when those walls are broken down and now it's our neighbor or our friend or our brother or our sister who's experiencing homelessness, who's experiencing poverty, who's experiencing the worst challenges in life, the spirit of despair as described in Isaiah 61, when we see somebody we love experiencing that, we're moved to action. Splachnitzimai. Our guts won't let us stand still anymore and we begin to act. And that's the model that Jesus set for us. That when we start looking beyond the labels and we begin to see the image of God in everyone, no matter their race or their gender or their location or their language or their income level, the image of God, and we begin to look at people through that lens, suddenly that great commandment becomes a little more challenging. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's why the lawyer asked, well, who's my neighbor? Even with that one, we try to sometimes keep that as like this big, broad definition. How about the person who lives across the street from you, next door to you, down the block from you? In Lancaster County, 10% of our population in Lancaster County is below the poverty line. And don't get me started on where that poverty line is and how unrealistic it is. 
10% of our population. And sometimes we think immediately of the city. Well, there's a whole lot, yeah, because it's 25% in the city. But if you get down to raw numbers, which represent real people, there are 16,000 individuals living below the poverty line in the city of Lancaster. But in the county, outside of the city, there are 39,000 people living below the poverty line. Almost three times as many. Two and a half times. I haven't done math for a long time. It's real, it's around us, it is your neighbors. But if we continue to think of the poor as a label, as a, it allows us to separate ourselves out. We're different. It's another group, it's another, and we're not moved by compassion. We're, we're tempted towards sympathy or pity, but I believe God calls us to be like Jesus. Radical thought. Hopefully not here. <laughs> I think Keith's doing a good job. I think we're called to be like Jesus. He wasn't. You would not leave heaven and come down to earth and take on the form of a human and go through what he went through and die on the cross out of pity or sympathy for our circumstances. No, what moved Jesus was compassion because he saw the image of God in each and every one of us. And so we can't look at this group of people called the poor and treat them as other. They are our brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends experiencing a rough time. And when we begin to get a glimpse of their circumstances, we shouldn't be moved to sympathy or pity. We should be moved to compassion. Our guts should be boiling inside of us. And when that starts to happen, don't put it out. Don't take a Tums or whatever those things are. Eat your Beano before you go out and visit somebody. Let it, let it stir. Let it move you to action. Let compassion move you forward to see those experiencing poverty as your brothers and sisters created in the image of God, invited to be sons and daughters of the Most High, just like you. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to look beyond the labels, to look beyond the human perspective and, and, and see your image in each and every one of us and to lay aside all that he had the rights to in order to come. And that even while he walked this earth, he was daily moved by compassion for his brothers and sisters. God, fill us with your spirit that we might be moved by compassion, Lord, that we would see each and every individual created in your image. Lord, help us to see with your eyes, not ours. Because on our own, we're going to start dividing and separating and judging again. God, we need your eyes and we need your spirit to show us truth. And Lord, we need your courage to respond when, when our insides are stirred. Lord, help us to respond to that call of compassion. 
to walk in relationship, not in transaction, but in relationship with our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.